Now, if you look up uh, studying Hebrews, if you saw on your bulletin like it says, is Jesus qualified? You might think easiest question ever asked. I get that. But that's only because you've already answered it. It's kind of like a little boy watching Bob the Builder. You know, can we build it? Spoiler alert. Yes, we can. He knows. It's just the mechanism of how that he enjoys watching. Well, we have, um, we have some issues here with Jesus that we need to talk about and some surprises from God. We are going through, if you're visiting with us, just to let you know, we're going through Hebrews, a chapter a week. People are reading ahead of time. They're reading after. Uh, the comments have just been amazing. And today it's Hebrews 5. I've had a lot of Jewish friends over the years, and I have absolutely been blessed by having them in my life. My life has been enriched in every way, from sitting with Jews and talking to Jews and learning from them. Whenever I work with groups that are not um, members of the Christian faith, normally, when they ask me why I believe, I start with Jesus stories. I don't do that with the Jews. And if you're wondering why, it's because they are absolutely certain that Jesus was not the Messiah. They are as convinced he is not the Messiah as I am convinced that he was and is the Messiah. Now, there are many things I could call into play here. I could go to prophecies in the Old Testament, bring them forward, and see how they are revealed and, or fulfilled, rather, in Jesus Christ. And I, and I do that with them. I can also go back to the Old Testament and find threads of meaning and theme and motif and show how Jesus is the entire theme of the Old Testament. And Jesus did that. But we don't have how he did it. What we know is two men, disappointed, brokenhearted, on the road away from Jerusalem, away from the people of faith, away from their community. Everything has been broken. They're headed to Emmaus. When Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears alongside them. They don't know who he is, but he asks them what's going on, and they tell him of the broken heart. They tell him of the Messiah, they thought, and how he died. And Jesus, the scripture says, starting with the old scripture, it just says scriptures because that's all they had at the time, showed them how everything spoke of him. There is a a very famous atheist who was um, actually the most, Anthony Flew, he was the most famous atheist in the world uh, until he got uh, in advanced age and two things happened. The rise of Richard Dawkins out of Oxford, but also the most famous atheist in the world in his 80s became a believer. And one, and there's a book, he wrote a, a little book. By the way, I read debates with this guy and, and Thomas Warren, a, a Church of Christ minister and a philosopher, and I wasn't able to understand the debates, frankly, because they weren't going on science, they were going on philosophy, and um, okay. So I didn't get it. So the, whenever Anthony Flew wrote a little book, There Is a God, I, I thought, well, it may not be worth even giving it a go, but I bought it, and it, he really... He should have put it down for dummies, and I'm talking about you, Patrick. It really worked. And one of the things he brings up are things such as that story of the two men walking to Emmaus. He said that had to have been the greatest sermon ever preached. It had to have been the greatest Bible class ever given, and yet not one word of it is put in the record, and the only reason that could be is because it was unnecessary. The people already knew. 
they already understood. And he starts showing, and he said, these people knew Jesus, and they believed. It goes on from there. But I find I could have gone all of those ways. I, for example, Philip. Philip the evangelist was sent to deal with the, the queen's treasurer and tell him about Jesus and bring him to faith. Uh, and, and he did. He stopped the chariot. All the queen's treasurer had was the book of Isaiah. And he didn't get it. In fact, Philip said, you know what? You, you, you get what you're reading. And he goes, how can you understand this unless you have somebody to tell you what it means? And so Philip started in Isaiah, the scripture says, and told him all things about Jesus. So we can do that. We can go to the Old Testament. We can do all of that. But if you're wondering why the Jews automatic, and we're talking religious Jews here, who are not messianic, they're not secular, these are religious Jews. And if you wonder why they just reject Jesus out of hand, there's one overwhelming reason, and there's a second almost overwhelming reason, and we'll get to it later. The first one, though, he came from the wrong family. He's not a Levite. The Old Testament's very plain. If you're going to be a priest, you have to come from the Levites. Jesus was not a Levite. No matter if you go with Matthew's genealogy or Luke's genealogy, and they run it back through different ways, uh, you don't find any Levites. You don't find the right family for Jesus to be a priest. Class distinctions to us are appalling, but in the ancient world, they were survival. I'll explain. The people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes, each named after a son of Jacob. That was the organizational structure of their entire society. These family groups were often given special jobs. And there were, we can complicate this, just going nuts, and talk about specialist groups within the groups. But let's just do an overview. The 12 different tribes had different jobs. If you were born in that job, in that tribe, this was the job you were going to do. If you were carpenters, you were going to be a carpenter. If you were shepherds, you were going to be a shepherd. A lot of that is actually still reflected in our last name. You have Fletchers, which are people who made arrows for war. You had carpenters, that's easy, farmers. You had names which showed this was your people. Uh, my, my last name means a brewer because it's a honey wine and a honey beer. Uh, and and alcohol, we're gifted. Uh, alcoholism is, is one of our best indoor sports in our family. So it does. It does somehow come down through. <clears throat> the point being, that's an echo of what had happened before. Now, a lot of the dystopian novels that you get, uh, you know, Hunger Games or the like, they play off of this being forced into a role because you were born into a class or assigned a class and how horrible it is. And I would agree, in today's society, that's horrible. Back then, it was survival. What if everybody wanted to be a singer? Singing is important. If not, the Psalms wouldn't be the biggest book in the Bible. But somebody's got to plant some seed. And somebody's got to herd the cattle. And somebody's got to carve the stones for the temple. And so you were placed in these groups. And the son of Levi, known as Levites were given the priesthood. Exodus 28.1 Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priest. This was the beginning 
of a dynasty, of a, a, a dynasty that would come throughout the generations, throughout the centuries among the Jews, the Levites. The firstborn son of every Levite family was to be handed over to be a priest if they had no visible scars, uh, no visible handicaps. Once then they were handed over, they were trained in a priesthood. The rest of the Levites would serve in other ways. They would care for the tabernacle, later the temple. They were the caretakers. They were the gatekeepers. They were the ones who made sure everything was where it should be at the right time and the wrong people did not get in. They also were the teachers. They were the educators. They were the scribes. They were the ones to make sure the law and the stories were passed on. There was only one human being higher than a priest because priests were even the judges. They could walk into an argument and decide who's right and what had to be done. But there was one above them all. That was the high priest. Always singular. Always one at a time. He could issue laws for the entire nation. He didn't, you didn't have to vote on it. He would watch over everything, decide something had to be done, and make a law. He was the ultimate authority. He was the Supreme Court. He was everything that it just all came to that one point. He also was the only one who could enter the most holy place. Sometimes in, the, in some versions of the Bible, the Holy of Holies. It's a fine translation as well. Either way, it just means the most holy spot on earth. It's part of the tabernacle, later part of the temple. And I want to save talking about that because later in the book of Hebrews, that's really important. And we're going to get to that later. In the meantime... Priests, all priests, were held to the highest standard of purity and integrity. <clears throat> Excuse me. This would also be uh, physical. They had to be clean. They had, <clears throat> their clothes had to be clean. They would change clothes, in fact, quite frequently during the day, in particular during high holy days. The high priest would change clothes quite often during that time. And it was all very ritually done. They were held to, to high standards of scripture knowledge as well. And, and yes, yes, some failed. And they were dealt with very harshly by God. Some abused their position. Some became drunks. Some made it a money-making proposition. Some abused women. We can find all of this in scripture. And God went after them. But Jesus was not a Levite at all. He was a first son but even that, the Jews back up and say, but he wasn't a son of Joseph. So even if Joseph had been a Levite, he would not have been a Levite. He's in the wrong tribe, the wrong family. And, they, and they're not being mean to them. This is, a, this is an absolute qualifier. No, he's got to come through Levi. And I'll quote these passages. Uh, for example, Exodus 40 and verse 15. Anoint them just as you anointed their fathers so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. And then Deuteronomy 18.5. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all of your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. Now just hold that one up for a while. Look at the, um, that's pretty insistent. That's pretty nailed down. It has a couple of ultimate words in there. Uh, for example, all your tribes. And they'll, they'll point that out to me. 
And then, how long? Always. And by the way, we do exactly that kind of arguing, don't we? We'll grab a verse and we'll run like this. But there are other passages and there are other stories. And the writer of Hebrews is now going to talk about this. So, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. By the time we are done with this summer going through the, uh, the book of Hebrews, we will have read out loud every word in the book of Hebrews. And I think we need to kind of continue that. Have a way to where the reading of scripture is elevated once again in the, in the pulpits of Scotland, um, uh, in, in the people that are part of us, uh, our, our particular movement. There are still two pulpits. Uh, one has a Bible open to the Old Testament, one has a Bible open to the New, and there's a reading for each Sunday. Every year, you will hear every word of the Bible read through. And you might think, that's really cool. And it is, but I do caution you, there is Ezekiel. <laughs> there is Leviticus. There are some slow bits. That's all I'm saying. There's some slow bits, but it's all, it's all good. Let's look. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's very important. That's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What? We'll learn about that in just a bit. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What's going on here? Well, let's just start. Let's, let's back up and run at the passage again. Every high priest is chosen from among the people. You didn't run for this job. In fact, wanting the job was almost a disqualification from having the job. Later on, people like Caiaphas and Annas would want the job and, and arrange politically to get the job, and they were horrible, and they presided over trials that sent Jesus to the cross. In the, day, in the, the polity, the political setup of the Old Testament, the people prayed, and a name would come. Whenever your shepherds here are needing somebody to lead a ministry, or they are looking around saying, we continue to grow, we continue to go out into the world and, and serve so many places, we need more shepherds. They began to pray. And I have a phrase for this that they've adopted, and I did not make up this phrase. I got this from a good friend of mine named John Laster, and I don't know where he got it. We pray them to the surface. And it is amazing, when you are earnest in prayer, take your time, how things narrow. And suddenly, you are looking at exactly what you need. Praying to the... And that's what the people did in the Old Testament. They prayed to the surface, a name. 
because this, this man has great authority, he is required to deal gently with the people. Anybody walking in, throwing hammers around, kicking over things? No. You need them to deal gently because he has to remember his own sins. This becomes very important in about a month. So hang with it, right? Well, it's important now, but I mean in a sermon series. You don't run for it. You have to be called. And you have to have the people agree that you were called. You can't walk in and say, God called me to this, so just want to let you know. No. The people have to agree. It is filled with signs and prayers. There had to be an action of God that showed this is them. None of that's done in private, by the way. None of it was done in private, which is a really interesting way to run a country. Nothing is done behind closed doors, and you don't pick up and pick a new one. And again, this is not a slander to our, our Catholic friends, but they pick a pope by going in private, shutting the doors, and you have to wait for the white smoke to come out. That was not an Old Testament way of doing it. You did it in front of everybody. Everybody saw the process. And that's pretty cool. The writer reminds them that God called Jesus. How can he do that? How can he say, well, God called Jesus? I and mean, we're all supposed to just to nod? Well, here's the thing. There were a lot of people alive who saw God call Jesus. They saw the baptism of Jesus. A few of them saw the transfiguration. Others had seen other signs. They knew through the signs Jesus had done, God had called him. They had seen heaven open and the Spirit come down. As Jesus put it, well, I'm sorry, as Paul would put it later, none of these things were done in secret. Everything was out in the open. They knew Jesus spoke with authority. When he was done with his first sermon that's recorded, what, the people, what was the people's response? Well, some believed and some did not. But the response that we get written down is, who is this guy? Because he doesn't speak like our scribes does. He speaks with authority. I love that passage. Because that doesn't mean, when a, when a Jewish person is saying that, the Semitic language is a fascinating one. Uh, oh, the Semitic languages are fascinating. Uh, when they say he speaks with authority, there is no indication in that that he is taking that authority on. It is rather when we hear him, we hear authority. We hear God's voice. So they'd all seen it. And by the way, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is not trying to convince people who don't believe in Jesus. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. And it's arranging their their uh, rank of heroes. We've talked about this now for a few weeks to make sure Jesus isn't on the same shelf as Moses and Elijah, but he is higher. What the writer is doing here in chapter 5 is showing them how and why Jesus came to be the high priest. You see, many of them believed in Jesus, but they believed that Jesus, coming of Jesus, was a continuation of what they'd always done. And while the Jews are absolutely our older brothers and sisters, and while we absolutely speak only highly and, and kindly of them, there's something new when Jesus comes. It's not Judaism 2.0. It absolutely has Jewish roots and Jewish themes throughout it because God had put those in the people. But God was doing something new, so somebody needed to show up. 
and a fascinating story is about to occur. I have come across a few of these stories in my own life. There were times where, uh, in Scotland, for example, I did not get this call, but the man I worked for, who is, who is now deceased, uh, sadly, uh, I worked with, rather. But uh, Alistair got a call from people saying, we found one of your papers, and it says that you guys are doing this. We're already doing that. And he said, we always have suspicion. Oh, really? And they said, yes. And he says, where are you? Livingston, which is just west of Edinburgh, uh, the capital. Uh, and so he went over and he came back and he said, they are. They're doing what we're doing. They'd never heard of us. I've heard, those stories have happened to me I don't know how many times. And you go and you, Cammie and I went into a barn once in the west of Scotland, went upstairs, and while they weren't exactly like us, they were, they were kind of like us. And it was amazing. They'd never heard of us before. They were just trying to follow God. And they were reading scripture, and this is where they were. My father was in the jungles of South, um, South America. Uh, just he and my, my son, who was about 10 years old, we grew up quick in my family. That's, uh, you know, throw them in the fire, best of luck. Uh, so he, they were down there. And they were going from village to village where you had to hike through the jungles or you had to use a, a boat. You, you couldn't, there were no roads. And dad talked about, and he didn't like talking about these things because he always liked to be the trailblazer. But he was in one place where a man came out of nowhere. He said he was a white man and that got his attention. And the man had this, um, like an explorer's vest on, uh, a waistcoat we would call it. And what my dad thought it was the coolest thing in the world, had a big envelope in the back and that's where the guy's Bible was. And the whole point of dad was saying, do you know where I could get a vest like that? And I'm going, no dad, I think you missed the point of the story. (laughs) But the man came out of nowhere in the jungle Helped dad and my son out for a bit. Told dad uh, he was a Church of Christ fella. And uh, he was just on his own. And then he walked off. And, and dad said he was really good. But we don't know his name or where he came from. And I thought, yeah. You got a Melchizedek moment there. Let's talk about him. Who's Melchizedek? Well, we're not going to read the story. It's back in Genesis 14. Here's the setup. The culture war. Back then, there were no nation divisions. There were no standing armies. There were no constitutions. Everything was was defended and defined every day by your behavior and your swords or fists. Every little tribe fought for every little stream, every little rock, and they had their own little areas. Abraham had his. Lot had his. But several tribes in the area were at war with each other, and some were forming coalitions. Some of these tribes got together, five, and they kidnapped Lot when they overtook his land. Now, why would you kidnap somebody back then? You're not going to have a ransom in the way we would do today. But to hold the leader of a tribe was to be the de facto new leader. That's just the way they did things. So they held Abraham's nephew. By the way, at this time in history, he's called Abram, but let's just stick with one name, shall we? Abraham gets his men together. He had 318 men of fighting age, and he went to get his nephew back, and he did. He defeated a coalition of five tribes, or as written in scripture, five kings. 
Now, I've had people poo-poo that and say, well, they weren't kings, they were just tribal chieftains. People, every tribal chieftain thinks he's a king. That's the way it is. You've seen this in schools where you've got one guy on the administration, this is my place, and acts like a king. You've seen it in churches, don't point, you've seen it in churches. And so, and by the way, there's even a historical record of a battle between a Hebrew, they weren't called Jews back then, because they're, well, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. They weren't called Jews yet. They were called Hebrews. A Hebrew chieftain, king, and five kings. And it, it just goes right with scripture, which is pretty cool. That said, he defeated them, he recovered Lot, and he's going back to put everybody back where they belong. And two kings show up out of nowhere. The king of Sodom, ooh, we're going to see that one again, pretty soon, actually, in Genesis, and the king of Salem. Now, the king of Salem gives us an interesting little word play because Salem is the word for peace, shalom, salam. The king of peace steps out of nothing, nowhere, and immediately the king of Sodom's not a player anymore. Abraham knows this is something different. His name, Melchizedek. And as he comes, he gives Abraham bread and wine. Now, I want you to just keep thinking of this. King of peace, out of nowhere, follows God, but Abraham had never heard of him, and he thought he was the only one who was. And when he comes, not only does he give Abraham bread and wine, Abraham immediately acknowledges there's something different about him and gives him a tithe, a tenth. Abraham, a tenth, uh, Abraham immediately gives him a tenth of everything he owns. This is something different. And then Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing in the name of God Most High, El Elyon the same name given in scripture. There is no question. This Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, of Yahweh himself. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, peace, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The Jews knew all about this story. They knew exactly what it meant. It meant that God, listen carefully, God has an older order of priests who are not Levites, and they are not Jews, and they are here. Jesus reminds the Jews that God has always had people that do not fit in your system. In John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. In the 400s, Columba, an Irish monk, fled with his friends because Columba had, had committed some sins. And he re repented of them and decided he needed to give his entire life to God as a way to show God uh, he was 
mortally sorry for engaging in war is what he had done. So he lands on an island of Iona off the west coast of Scotland and goes in and begins to preach to the Druids. When he told them the story of Jesus and his birth, he was shocked when the Druids hit their knees and cried and were, were praising God. And he asked them, what are you doing? And their response was, we have been waiting. We have been waiting to hear. My wife and I got a call once. We were living in Carswell Bank, uh, southwest Scotland. And I got a call from a man in Barahid, in the village uh, just two down the road. And he said, are you the one that put this thing through my door? Because we'd put little, uh, they, their mail slots are on the doors. You don't have mailboxes. So we just, we'd put advertisement. And I said, yeah, it's probably us. And he says, I want to talk to you. And I'm going, oh, that doesn't sound good. Uh, people in the west of Scotland can be a, you know, a hard a bit. Um, so I went, sat down, and he looked at me, and he told me about his believing wife who had died. He was in his 70s. His name was Bill Paul. He had been a thug in his life. Uh, he had been hard. And then he watched his believing wife die a few years before, and he was still haunted by her faith. And he said, tell me what this is. And I talked to him a little bit about Jesus. And he leaned over, angry. And he said, where have you been? Where have you been? He said, nobody's come to tell us about this stuff. Well, there are churches everywhere, but you have to go in them, don't you? You have to already be in them. He was angry. By the way, we later baptized him. He's one of the nicest guys you ever knew. But that has haunted me ever since. Where have you been? We need to know there are people out there that are ready. They're waiting. And we have some allies that we've never thought about. In the Jewish songbook, we find Melchizedek again in Psalm 110, the first four verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This isn't going to be a Levite. This is going to be a high priest. And by the way, Christians view this correctly in my my take of it, as a prophecy about Jesus Christ, a messianic psalm, and it shows up in, in Hebrews and book of Revelation saying it applies to Jesus. Why don't the Jews immediately accept it? They believe that it's a, um, it's a psalm about a Messiah that'll come in war. We believe that this war that is in Psalm 110 is not a physical war of swords, but of truth. And love. We take this in a different way. And by the way, that's a constant objection among the Jews that I know I cannot paint. I've been acting like I've been painting this big brush. The Jews that I know has a constant objection is that the Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow enemies. And I say he did, but they want it done with a sword. And I said, he did. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so until we can sort that out. But notice also, Melchizedek is called king of peace. Jesus comes as prince of peace. Don't get hung up in here. Well, one's a king, one's a prince. Those titles didn't mean 
what they mean today. It was, it, it's a superlative is all it is. He is the one who leads in peace. He is the kind of king that rules by peace, not war. The Roman Empire made peace by destroying their enemies, burning their homes and fields, taking their women and children into slavery. The Celtic warrior, Caledonia, the tribe, a Scotsman, the Scots were not conquered. They were, the, the, they were stopped there. And you had the, the walls, the Antonine Wall, the Hadrian's Wall, perhaps you've heard about, that they, the Romans eventually built to keep the Scots away because they, they were just crazy up there. Well, they went up to, to take Scotland way to the north. They had sent their ships around ahead. I could talk about this for hours, but I won't. A Celtic warrior called Calgacus gave a speech. Now, the only copy we have of this speech is by a Roman, Tacitus. And there are those who believe that he probably made it up. But it, and I'm not going to read the speech. But the last line, to robbery, slaughter, plunder. They, the Romans, give the lying name of empire. They make a solitude and call it peace. Most people rewrite that last line and have him saying, they make a desert and they call it peace. In the speech, Calgacus reminds the Scottish people, the Caledonians, that we have never had slavery. That's what they bring. We have never had what they are bringing. We have to fight for our freedom because there's no one behind us but rocks and sea. They actually lost that battle, but the Romans won that battle and lost the war. Regardless, I think of what kind of king do you want? One that makes a desert and calls that peace or a prince of peace? who says, love one another. Opening up your mind to a non-Levite priest and being a high priest and a king who brings down kingdoms by loving them out of existence. That's hard work. So the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter five, and by the way, Laurie Lee fixed this for me. I had the wrong scripture up. Thank you. She's amazing. She's, my, she's half my brain, my left arm, and uh, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Oh, he's been on Twitter. <laughs> In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Wow. A little harsh? Yeah, but it's true. The only way to master what's going on in Scripture is through practice. It also means that you, you don't always study what you know. You go learn something else. I've been asked by people, why do I read so much atheist literature? Why do I read so much literature that wasn't written by our brotherhood? And the answer is always, where two people agree about everything, one of them is unnecessary. Two, you never learn anything by reading someone who agrees with you. And three, you need to practice discerning. You need to practice. Don't study what you already know. Don't drink milk because you like milk. It's kind of like we were on a cruise with uh, the Castellese years ago, and beside us was an American family with two teenagers. Every, if you've never been on a cruise, the food is what you've heard. It's just amazing. 
And every single night, they would look at the menu and they would whine, and the two teenagers would get mac and cheese. Why? Stretch. Learn. We're about to close this down, Mark. I know you're going to charge the stage. Um, do, Do so gently or security will grab you. They say, I have a feeling they applaud you. You know, I, I don't know. Are you open to God doing something entirely new? Melchizedek, a shock to the system. Well, that spoiler alert, later they would name a town after the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who showed up. It would be called the city, the mountain of peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, are you ready for God to come out of the blue, shake up your wee little world, and do something new? The Mosaic law was a complicated, precise system. Christianity is not a replacement for that. It is about a surprise appearance of God that changes everything. Is Jesus qualified? Oh, yes. Out of the blue, the order of Melchizedek, the high priest of heaven. 